Let's pray the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. My name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm in great need of uh, Al-Anon. There are some rumors circulating that I've heard this morning, one of which is that someone named Terry is having a birthday. And Terry, you know who you are, and you don't have to indicate who you are, but we know who you are, just Tracy. so you know. There we are. So, Tracy. Tracy. I meant Tracy. All right. Tease. Tracy. Did I say Terry? Could have been much worse. Um, this morning I talked a little bit about Bill and Bob and how they get together and how they meet. And these are two very different human beings. And it is because they were willing to work together, even though they were very different, that we have been given a chance of recovery. Um, their craziness worked together. It would have been very easy, I think, for either of them to write the other guy off. But they didn't. I think part of the reason they didn't was uh, they needed to reach out in their desperation. Bill needed help, and Bob needed help. And they both needed help so much that their arrogance and pride didn't get in the way. And I think that's a good thing. Over the years that they have uh, gathered together women and men, we've come up with some tools called the slogans. And, and the slogans are kind of shorthand versions of steps and insights and traditions. There's an Al-Anon book I'm somewhat familiar with called how Al-Anon works for families and friends of alcoholics. And they have a lot of really good things of, in here, many of which I relate to. But in their ninth chapter, they talk about the Al-Anon slogans. Uh, and I'd like to, uh, Saturday afternoon, the, the class after lunch, I'd like to rub a couple of slogans in your direction and see, uh, see how you go. One of the very first I heard when I started going into Al-Anon, it's not listed in the book here, but it's one of the first ones I heard, and that slogan is, act, don't react. Act, don't react. I'm a very reactive person. Um, it's, in fact, in many ways, this can be a great strength. I'm, I'm highly intuitive, and if something's going on, I can respond to it. And I'll tell you, when I was in the classroom, that was a very useful skill to have because I'm able to think on my feet and I can respond to crises. I'm from an alcoholic family, for God's sakes. I'm able to respond to crises and I can, I can do this and I can do that and I'm flexible and I can, you know, you, you bob and weave and you bob and weave and you keep moving because it's hard to hit a moving target. Um, 
But if I react all the time, I will be exhausted by the end of the day. Someone comes to me with anger, I respond with anger. Someone comes to me with fear, I respond with fear. Someone comes to me with sarcasm, I respond with sarcasm. If someone comes very threateningly, I can be very threatened. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that tied to your emotional state. I remember hearing Blanche talk about uh, the sense she had of she wanted to be close to her husband and she thought for a while that meant that we felt the same things at the same time. And that's not a good idea, you know. How are we feeling this morning? Uh, you have to tell me so I know how you're feeling and then my reactions are going to be different. And some of us, especially if we think alcoholics are cute, what we can do is get on the roller coaster ride with them. And they have all this drama and all this drama and all this excitement. And we go along with them for the ride. And it's easy to be a casualty in something like that, going along for the ride. Um, I don't want to do that. So what I'm allowed to do in Al-Anon is I don't have to get on the roller coaster. I'm here at the gate. You've gotten on the roller coaster. You go do whatever you have to do. Every time you go by the gate, you'll see me waving at you. But I'm not going to go along for the ride. I don't want the adrenaline. I don't want the craziness. And this is part of acting rather than reacting. And sometimes acting rather than reacting for me means that I keep my big fat mouth shut. Because boy, do I have something to say. And a lot of times this becomes kind of, it's sort of subtle and it, it's very quick and ephemeral. Um, I can respond to tones of voice. And there are certain tones of voice that can trigger me. And sometimes if you say something to me, I can respond and I think I'm being amusing, but I'm being mean. Or I'm being sarcastic or I'm being disrespectful. That has happened 5,000 times. 5,000 times. And I, uh, sometimes it's best to keep my big mouth shut. In the AA book, the 12 and 12, on page 91, and I remember this because, or 92, I can, I'll find it. It says we, we look forward to something about restraint of tongue and pen. And in our modern age, we would say restraint of tongue, pen, and email. Because I can come up with a real quick reply, send, and I can regret having sent that. So uh, act, don't react. I want to be in a centered place. I want to be helpful. I don't want to be pulled into the crazy. And there's a lot of crazy out there. Whew. Act, don't react. Another one that I find so helpful in Alcoholics Anonymous is to keep an eye on HALT, H-A-L-T, the hungry, the angry, the lonely, the tired. It's the best spiritual advice I've ever been given, and it is all about simple physical things. Hungry. I, if I don't eat, if I don't take care of myself, if I don't eat intelligently, I will be paying the price. I uh, help out in elections. And uh, over 
20, 25 years, I've, I've frequently been in charge of a precinct. Uh, I'm the inspector, and I pick up all the election supplies and set it up, and there's a board of people running, and then I'm there all day, and at the end of the day, you, you bring stuff in. And I've liked doing this a long time. But you learn by doing, and you learn by making mistakes. And in 1992, we were having a presidential election also in California. We were electing two senators, and there were a bunch of propositions, and there was a lot of excitement, and a lot of people were... Uh, you know, shoving each other downstairs. They were so angry about everything. So um, uh, I show up for the election, and the election uh, precinct is in a senior citizen's hotel. Um, so a lot of older people there, a lot of them will need help in casting ballots, and I like doing that. I like being helpful. I've, I helped a guy a few elections ago who was 99, and he wanted to vote, and his mind was clear, and his eyes were clear, but he couldn't use his hands. So he, he, he told me how to vote. Uh, he didn't vote how I did, but he told me how to vote, and then he watched me like a hawk as I marked his ballot form, as he should, you know, because it's so easy to, to cheat. I, we run an honest election. I had a lady come in, uh, an older lady, and she came in with her daughter, and she had uh, vision problems, and she said, I'm going to need some help with my ballot, and I said, uh, uh, your daughter can help you if you like, and she said, my daughter is a Democrat, and I don't trust her. So that was so fine, I'll, and we marked her ballot as she wanted it marked. Um, well, you need a board of able-bodied people. This was in 92, and uh, we, there was stuff you lugged around and carried around, and you really needed someone strong like ox to help set this stuff up. And we had uh, an older gentleman, older than even me now, and he was, he was rather elderly, and he kept falling asleep every few moments. We had another lady who was a disabled person and only had one good hand, and she had a cigarette in that all day long. These are ballots. Paper, you have to move this stuff. Or, I mean, so I, she was not helpful. And the fourth person of my board, not counting me, was a crazy lady who kept talking about Judgment Day and Rapture and the end of the world. Well, usually you take an hour off in the morning and an hour off in the afternoon. You can take a break. You can get something to eat. Uh, and then you're there from 5 o'clock until the polls close at 8 o'clock. I couldn't leave the precinct. I didn't think I had one competent person there in case a voter needed help, so I just stayed, and I didn't eat, and I didn't eat, and I didn't eat. And I, I think I may have had some water, something, but it was stressful, and so many things were going on, and I was worried, and I was upset, and I wasn't eating. So there was no blood sugar coming into my body and coming into my brain, and I'll tell you, by 4 o'clock, I was dangerous. I was dangerous, and I was feeling crazy, and I was starting to overreact to everybody. Uh, you know, why does God give us sponsees? So I called two of my sponsees, strong like ox sponsees, and I said, get down here, I need you, and they helped me uh, run the precinct for the rest of the evening. It was crazy, and I felt lunatic-like. So I've since learned... 
bring a banana, bring an apple, bring an orange, bring something, pace yourself. Last election, which was uh, a little while ago, it was a pretty good day, competent board, and I watched the hungry. Um, sometimes I won't eat because I'm so busy, and then I wonder why I'm frantic. Well, I've had a lot of chocolate and caffeine. What's the problem? Well, maybe you need protein. You know, and, and I have I have to be aware of this. You'd think by the age of 63, I'd have food figured out. But there are times I do really dumb things around food. There was a lady that came to vote in this same uh, same precinct, different election. And she I think she'd been having a bad day for about 25 years. And she came in and she was really cranky and um we had stuff going on, and anyway, she kind of stood at the, the door, and she, w she snarled. Now, my first reaction was to shove her down the stairs. You don't want to do that with voters. I mean, you don't want to do that. But by this time, I had some Aladon, and I had some life experience, and I had some program, and so I was able to use an Aladon slogan phrase that has been a lifesaver for me and the slogan is this I'll be right back and I told her I, I didn't like her I'll be right back why don't you have a seat I'll have your ballot in just a minute and I went over and I got some orange juice I drank some orange juice I breathed a little bit I asked God for help I settled down, and then I went back and I said, let's get you voting. And, and it worked out. But my first reaction hungry, angry. I get, I, I get angry. I've mentioned that earlier today. I was talking to someone who said if I was really spiritual, I would never be angry. And I thank them for that very useful insight. Um, I don't need a program that would deal with me if I were different. I need a program that deals with me as I am, and I get mad. So I have to do something with the anger, and I'm a gardener, and sometimes what I do with the anger is I go outside and I dig and I plant and I chop. It really helps. Angry, and anger for me comes and goes, and it's an energy. I've never gotten rid of anger by praying it away. Oh, God, please remove my... I have to go do something. Exercise is helpful for anger. Doing some writing is sometimes helpful with anger. Um, getting on a long, serious walk sometimes. Stamping is really good with anger. Lonely. I can get lonely, and, and uh, that can make me feel ashamed because I've been in the program, and I shouldn't be lonely. I have all these friends, and I... But I get lonely sometimes. I think most folks do. I, I got sober in Berkeley. I moved to Los Angeles, six hours south, was sober down there for four years, moved back to the Bay Area, uh, and I, I was lonely. And I remember calling my sponsor. You know, what, are they, what do we pay them for? You know, uh, I called my sponsor, and I said, I'm feeling lonely. And he said, that's right. What do you mean that? Fix me. Well, um, it comes and goes. Make some phone calls. Go to a meeting. Say hello to newcomers. Be nice to cranky old timers. That's how you deal with lonely. And I found that helpful. And I, I do that. Tired. I get tired. 
and I don't notice I get tired. There's a woman in the program on the West Coast. She's a, a musician of all things. Would you believe an alcoholic musician? Who could think? And she, uh, she used to think that when she was tired, it meant drink coffee, smoke cigarettes. And she was dry five years before she had her first meeting. And I was there at her first meeting. She was terrified. She was just so full of rage. Few meetings will help. Um, but I found now tired for me usually means lie down for a while, take a nap, get a siesta, get a massage, do something relaxing. I have to learn how to rest. Even when I don't know how tired I am, because I get goofy. Tired is important. So halt. Watch the hungry, the angry, the lonely, the tired. Crucial stuff. When some of my sponsees call me and they're in crises, I try to find out what are they angry about? Have they eaten lately? Uh, do they, have they been talking to their friends? And how much sleep are they getting? At the age of 63, my current solution to almost any problem is get more sleep. I've lost a sponsee or two on this. They would rather write the big book out in longhand, but I think they just need sleep. Well, then write the big book out in longhand, then get some sleep. You know. I heard this at an Al-Anon meeting, not H-A-L-T, but W-A-I-T. Why am I talking? Now, some of us, I've heard this, a lady in Texas, I think her name is Stephanie, or maybe it's Ellen. Ellen. Um, she has the need to over-explain. If I just explain this to you one more time, you'll agree with me. And that just doesn't work. So she will ask herself, why am I talking? Just shut up. Your words aren't helping anybody. And my friend Marilyn, who has an alcoholic daughter and an alcoholic grandson, Marilyn will say, why am I still talking? Uh, you know, it's time to do something else. The, the constant harping, nagging, preaching is going nowhere. Slogan. Keep it simple in honor of Dr. Bob. Keep it simple. I can think very complicated thoughts. Especially at night. And I think I have a dozen or a hundred or a thousand ideas running around my head. And I've learned that if I write them down, I usually don't have a thousand thoughts running in my head. I have one and a half thoughts running in my head. But it's just going fast and relooping and relooping and relooping and reaping. And it, it just, the tape won't stop. But it's not like it's a lot of ideas, it's only a couple. You know, it's not your fault. I don't like them. There's not enough money. Three of my favorite thoughts. <laughs> keep it simple. I want to keep my life simple. I want to keep my program simple. I want to keep relationships simple. Part of keeping things simple is telling the truth. It's amazing how complicated my day can be if I lie just a little. Or as we Americans would say, if I spin something a little. You know? But they mean lies. Spin doctors are liars. Uh, 
and a lot of public relations is a lie, and a lot of political campaign is a lie, and a lot of advertising are big lies. These are not people known for telling the truth. I need to tell the truth about my own situation and about what I know, and if I don't know things, I need to say that out loud. When you lie, you have to remember what you said. You have to keep track of things a lot. It's exhausting. When Mahatma Gandhi uh, was a younger man, he would go around saying, God is truth, God is truth, God is truth. As an older man, he said, truth is God, truth is God, truth is God. How do you maintain a relationship with your higher power? Tell the truth. Lying cuts us off from the light of the Spirit. So telling the truth is a big part of keeping things simple, and it's a big part of the program. Tell the truth. Slogan. Easy, does it? I remember hearing that for the first time, wondering, easy does what? And I think this slogan is for those of us who are in hyperdrive. For those of us who are too hopped up, too intense, um, too type A. Some of this is taken care of just by getting older, in my experience. But I don't want to live my life in a frenzy. I easy does it. Not everything is a big deal. I don't have to fight about everything. I don't have to clarify everything. Growing up in a crazy family, you find that you're pretty vigilant because you've got to pay attention to a lot of stuff. And I find easy does it is a way of letting go. It's a way of relaxing. It's a way of just detaching from some of the craziness. Part of easy does it for me is the realization that a lot of things are none of my business. Well, I'm so upset about X, Y, and Z. Who cares? You go be upset. <laughs> I'm going to take a nap. That's Alan on recovery when you can nap when the family's in crisis. Another Alan on slogan or another slogan that we use first things. First. Well, how do you know what's first? Boy, that's a big conversation. One of my friends is a bright, accomplished, professional kind of person, lives in the Northwest, and, and she's always had trouble making decisions because everything looks the same. What's first? Let's see. The cat needs to be fed. All my socks need to be matched. And the kitchen's on fire. Where are those socks? You know, and you start matching socks. Um, it, it takes a bit of, of life experience to start prioritizing things. 
and finding out that some things are important and some things are not important. Usually stuff that only concerns me individually is not as important as some other stuff that might influence a lot more people. Uh, if I have to choose between paying my bills and matching my socks, paying bills goes first. Because that impacts other people. And a lot of us in this economy are in one of these positions. If I pay my bills, they can pay their bills. And if I don't do that, people don't. I mean, th there are ripples from this, so I want to make sure I do that. First things first. And part of first things first for me in recovery was understanding that I had been treating people like things, and I had been treating things like people. People come first. Relationships come first. Other stuff, who cares? Who cares? Some things are not very important. And they're not going to get taken care of. It's way down the emergency position. I was paying attention to you know some impossible jobs like President of the United States, Governor of California, perhaps Governor of Louisiana. And these are people who have impossible jobs because there's a hundred crises on any given day, all of them very important. I don't know how you make those decisions sometimes. Uh, it, it, it's a very difficult process. But first, things first, and aging has helped me on this. Some things are more important than other things. When a lot of my friends started dying, when uh, uh, AIDS came through the community, AIDS went through Narcotics Anonymous real rough on the West Coast and in AA2. And uh, people who looked fine today and would be dead in three weeks. And this was in the mid-80s to early 90s. And there were a lot. It, suddenly, you never knew who was going to live or die. And some things became very important, uh, like that letter you were going to write if you ever got around to it, saying thank you for something, take care of that letter today. Um, I, I was working on those steps where it was time to make amends. And some amends for me was saying I'm sorry. There were a couple of those letters I sent out. Some people I needed to see face-to-face -face for amends stuff. Some financial amends I needed to take care of, which I was able to take care of pretty quickly. And I also had some letters of thanks to write for people who had gone way out of their way to help me out in various times, and I never thanked them. And I found out that that was important stuff to do first. First things first. Another slogan, just for today. Just for today. There's stuff I can do just for today. There's stuff I don't do. This is very similar to one day at a time. They're very similar, a little different, very similar. Uh, here's a couple of things about my own internal chaos. It's easy for me to project into the future. I want to stay in the present. Just for today, there are some things I have to do. And just for today, there are some things I don't do. 
but I can get anxious about the next 20 years or the next 50 years. What about November? Who knows, you know? What about tomorrow? Who knows? Um, I'm not an optimist. I, I think we are in trouble, and I think lots of things are bleak. But just for today, there's some things I can do, and just for today, there are some things I don't do. Part of my alcoholic brain uh, is I think of drinking. I think of running away from home. I think of winning the lottery. I think of shoving some people downstairs. And um, you will meet people who have not had the thought of a drink since their first meeting. I'm very happy for them. I think of drinking pretty regularly. And what I've managed to do, the tools I use around that are this. When I think of drinking, I say, I don't drink today. I can always drink tomorrow. I don't drink today. And then I kind of relax. If I say, oh, I can never drink again, I just want to cry. I feel so sorry for myself. But I, it doesn't bother me. If I just don't drink today, it's okay. And some days are long. And some days I get hit with a wave of self-pity or self-loathing, another one of my favorites. I don't get that one a lot, but every so often a, a wave of self-loathing comes on me. And I know it will pass, and I have to pay attention to today and ask God for some help. I cannot fix me. Just for today, however... I can behave better. I heard Blanche say this. She was going through a, an awful divorce with her husband. And she said, I don't have to like any situation, but I have to like me in the situation. So the situation might be bad. That doesn't mean I behave badly. The situation might be really nasty but I'm not going to contribute to it. That's part, again, of act, don't react. I will tell the truth. I will be fair. I will be courteous. I will be polite. And I'll run for my life. I got a call from a... I'm great on other people's lives. I'm awful on my own, but I'm great on other people's lives. I got a call from... One of my friends, he's a priest in recovery on the West Coast, an alcoholic family and drinking father and drinking mother and chaos and drama and hospitals and institutions and stuff and, and siblings, brothers and sisters. Anyway, there had been a, an enraged phone call from one of his parents to uh, one of his siblings about X, Y, and Z, and they wanted Frank to get involved in this. So a parent, a, a sibling, and then you. And it was nasty and it was mean-spirited. And Frank called me kind of in a panic. And I was able to channel Lois Wilson and say, Frank, this is none of your business. This is between those two. It is not about you. You don't have to get roped into their crazy. Unless you like being roped into their crazy. Then you can do it. 
And he said, really? I, I said, you can just pretend you never got either phone call. <laughs> or you can call back and say, I'm not going to play this game. One of my, my uh, when my father died, I have two brothers, older brothers, and they don't get along. One's a little more conservative and one's a little more liberal and one liked Mr. Bush, one didn't like Mr. Bush, and, and they would snipe at each other. Your family's probably not like that. Send nasty emails to each other and snipe and use and poke and like, you know, siblings. It's just awful. So anyway, uh, my father died and, and I was going to preside at the funeral and at the funeral mass. And I was back in the sacristy with my two brothers and they started. Can you believe? They started. Ten seconds before the funeral liturgy begins, they act like they're nine years old. And I suddenly used my teacher voice. And I'm the youngest. I said, stop it! I said, not now! And I shamed them into better behavior. And I like being able to do that to family members. Just so you know. <laughs> Just for today. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, a few Christmases later, I was, was gathered for Christmas Eve, and, and I was there, and, and one of my brothers sat down at the table. And my other brother was going to come and sat down next to him, and I figured this could be awful. And they both behaved. And I was glad. They didn't act like they could. Slogan. Let it begin with me. Let it begin with me. This lets, lets me know that my own behavior is important. There's so much I can't do. You know, I can't take care of the Sudan. I cannot take care of Pakistan. I have no solution for Afghanistan. I don't know what should happen in the Gulf. I don't know what should happen in so many places. But there are a few things I can do in my own life, and I'm going to do those. Tell the truth. Be of service. Treat someone kindly who's a jerk. Be fair. Be polite. Open the meeting on time. Help clean up the meeting afterwards. Listen to someone who's having a rough day. Those are a few things I can do. Let it begin with me. Well, as soon as everyone else shapes up, then I'll shape up. Well, then we're doomed. Because they aren't going to shape up. But I can act better. One of my friends went out again. What should I do? I went to a meeting. I'm staying sober today. Let it begin with me. I can deal with him later. If he lives. If he lives. God has given each one of us our own emotional, psychological acre. And in recovery, I have to learn how to take care of my own acre. There's so much I can't do about others but I can take care of some stuff right here. 
Well, what about the future of AA as a whole? <laughs> I'm not in charge. But my home group meeting I'm involved in, and I can make some differences there. Welcoming newcomers, being nice to cranky old-timers, taking out the trash. Mopping the floor, one of my favorite things. Because that actually accomplishes something. You know? A lot of people who come to my home group meetings seem to leak a lot. There's a lot of leaky things on floors afterwards. I just observe that. I have no judgment. But I can clean up that meeting. Uh, that meeting is at 6.30, another meeting is at 8.15, another meeting is at 10. I can have the room clean for the next meeting. That's something I can do. I can't do much about the golf, but I can have the room clean for the next meeting. Great question. How important is it? It's like first things first, but how important is it? Some stuff is not important. How do I look, please? Like an alcoholic. How do you think you look? Um, how important is it? Some stuff is not worth fighting over. Other stuff is different. But this, this takes place with experience and, and age and, and growing older and getting some wisdom. And a lot of stuff is not very important. Slogan, think. In AA, it goes, think, 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 because they know we need the repetition. Um, and the, the point I'd like to make on this is that thinking does not mean obsessing. That's different. When I'm obsessing, I'm taking the same thought or a couple of thoughts and running them over and over and over in my mind, and there's no solution. It's just obsessive thinking, and some of us are tortured with obsessive thinking, and we torture others with it. Thinking's different. Thinking is the mind at work. Well, how do minds work? Well, here's, here's the process. When the mind is working, there are five steps, basic things to, to mental activity. Number one, do some research, gather data, get information. Get information. Do some reading, ask some questions, run some experiments, look around, gather data. That's number one. Get information. Number two, sift it to find the best. Some of it's worthless, some of it's no good, some of it might be very important. All the statistics from 1953 probably aren't that useful. But the stuff from last week might be very useful. Sift it to find the best. Number three, put it in some kind of order, some kind of system. Four, draw a conclusion. Five, put it out to be criticized put it out for feedback. That's basically what we call the scientific method, and that's the mind at work. That's what Bill and Bob did as they were putting the program together. Gather data, what works, what doesn't work. This is a program. How did it work for you? Here are the six steps, here are 12. Do these ring true? Is this your experience? 
Put it out so others can criticize it. Get some feedback. And then we're presented with a book. And other pamphlets. But it wasn't Bill channeling God writing all that down by himself. It was Bill using an awful lot of resources to put together some information. In Al-Anon, it's a very similar process. You put a topic out and you get a lot of feedback and you do research and you put it in some kind of order and then you say, does this make sense? We talk about um, the warranties. And one of the warranties is that the program be democratic in, in our method of procedure. Meaning, we talk about stuff a lot and we come to decisions with a lot of discussion. Getting in information, gathering it, sifting it, putting out, criticizing it. This is our process. It's not somebody from the top talking down to us. And then you see what works and what doesn't work. It is such a practical program. Bill gets uh, sober. There's a friend of his named Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby gets religion, and he means it. He got very involved in Oxford group, and he's a very active member of the Oxford program and reads the Bible and does stuff and reads the Bible and does stuff and gets involved in a discussion group. And Bill is brought to his first Oxford group meeting by Ebby Thatcher. And Bill, of course, shows up drunk and tries to take the meeting over because that's what we do. Well, Bill does get sober, and he's curious and interested, and he needs information. He doesn't know anything. He's full of opinions and bigotry and suspicion, but he doesn't know anything. And so he, ha he starts a lifetime of research, talking to Dr. Silkworth, talking to other people, reading stuff, interviewing people. He is a curious guy. He uh, studies business, he studies law, he studies this, he studies that, loves the market. And one of the first books he reads is by the American teacher, physician, psychologist, William James. And the book is entitled, The Varieties of Religious Experience. It's written over a hundred years ago. Uh, 1904, something like that. William James. William James is a big shot. He's a professor at Harvard University. He's a physician. He's a very well-known name. He's established um, uh, in, uh, in the American intellectual circles. William James had clout. He had a brother named Henry James who moved to England because the family was crazy. Their old man was a drunk and a bully and wanted his kids to be well-educated. So they'd be a school here, and then the old man would hear about a school over here that was better. He'd yank his kids out of school on Monday and have them in the new school on Tuesday. He did that half a dozen times. What does that do to kids? You know, you, you never really settle down. William James wanted to be an artist. And the old man said, ah, there's no money in art. You're going to be a doctor. And a hundred years ago, the language of science was German. Takes William James, when he's 15, 
sends him to Germany to learn German. Sink or swim, kid, that's how you learn. So he, but he does learn German, and he's kind of overwhelmed. But the family's been slapped around a lot. So the James children, and there were four of them, they knew a lot about some things, but other stuff they didn't know anything about. It was a selective education. Anyway, Henry, thanks, Dad, for all your help, moves to England and writes books. William becomes a very accomplished physician and philosopher in the United States. There's a daughter named Clara, and she never thrives. She never flourishes. She's an invalid her whole life, and she dies early. And there's a brother named Robert who drinks himself to death. American family. William James um, will go to uh, Great Britain. And he will give a series of lectures on religion. He interviewed people. He asked questions. He took religion seriously. He asked women and men, tell me your experiences. What was it like? What happened? What it's like now? I'm doing research. And he asked all kinds of folks all kinds of questions. And then he put it in some kind of order. And then he presented it in a series of lectures, I think in Scotland, although I might be wrong on that. It could be Wales on what the religious stuff is all about. And this got written down and published, and the name of the book is The Varieties of Religious Experience. Point number one, there's more than one way to do this. There's more than one way people experience this. Some people sudden and dramatic, some people slow and educational, and lots in between. James will finish up his book by saying, last paragraph, last page, most people don't care what they believe as long as it works. So William James and a few others, and I wish I could remember their names, are tied up intellectually in a school of American stuff called pragmatism. How do things work? We like that. We like pragmatic solutions. We're pragmatic people. One of the great Americans of the 19th century, Thomas Edison, 19th into the 20th century, a pragmatic guy. Let's see how things work. The young Bill Wilson was a curious, curious young man, and he will make a boomerang. And it works. He throws it and it comes back. That's engineering. And that young Bill Wilson will meet the old Thomas Edison. And Edison will offer him a job. But it's not interesting, Bill. Let's have a good time. Leave me alone, old man. I'm going to get rich on the stock market. It's because of the influence of William James, I think, on, on Bill that the key chapter in the AA Big Book is not entitled What It Means but how it works. If you do these steps, you'll get these results. This is how it works. One other thing about William James that I, I found very, very helpful, his experience You build, you grow, you develop, you build, you grow, you develop, and then things collapse. 
then you build, you grow, you develop, you build, and then things collapse. And personally, throughout his life, he had a series of nervous breakdowns. He'd be very productive, and then he'd be useless. Then he'd be very productive, and then he'd be useless. A lot of writing between him and his wife. This is before email. Uh, lots of writing between the two of them. And, and uh, James will talk about his own mind, and they'll say, my mind works um, by zigzags and interruptions. It, it's not a smooth evolutionary movement up. It, it spins around and does that and does this, and then there's an interruption. Then there's a and that's my mind working. A lot of us have minds that work like that. You know? He'll go to the West Coast. Stanford University will hire him. They want to start a school of philosophy, of, uh, me, of psychology. Uh, Sigmund Freud is doing this in Europe. Uh, Carl Jung. These are medical men who are inventing psychology, inventing psychiatry. 1880s, 1890s, 1900. And the pro most prominent American was William James. So Stanford says, come out to Stanford for a couple of years. We'll pay you a zillion dollars and you can get something going out here in this far bastion of whatever. William James is there in 1905-1906. The San Francisco earthquake and fire happened in April of 1906. Uh, my father was two years old at the time. They're right there in that part of the world. James gets up to San Francisco right afterwards, and what does he see? The whole city has been knocked down and is on fire. They broke the water mains. Um, Water didn't get delivered. They, they decided, we have to stop the fire. We'll use dynamite to stop the fire. And, of course, the dynamite spread the fire. So they learned by trial and error. And a lot of what they discovered is everything we know is burning the city down faster than we thought. So there's troubles in San Francisco. If uh, you ever come west, I'll show you around a little bit. There's In some of the big streets, they have uh, uh, a big intersection and there's brick in the middle of the intersection. What's the brick doing there? Under the brick are water cisterns. So that in the next earthquake, if all the water mains break, we can pull up the brick and there's water to put the fire out. That was the solution of 1907, 1908. Um, same thing happened in the fire in 1989. The water mains broke. Oh, well, who cares? James goes up to San Francisco. And he's amazed at what he sees. Everything's been knocked down. And what are people doing? Rebuilding. Exactly. Now, in recovery, it works like that. We get a foundation. We go to meetings. We do some steps. Life happens. You're five years clean and sober. And you're back at step one. You do some steps, you do some inventories, you reach out for help, you pray and meditate. You go to a meeting, you're 10 years clean and sober, and you say things like, I think I'm just beginning. I'm starting all over again. And the reason I mention this, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. That means you're doing it. Every so often... We start over from the very beginning. 
and I think that's a good thing. Zigzags and interruptions. So we think, gather information, sift it to find the best, put it in some kind of order, draw a conclusion, put it out to be criticized, get some feedback. I've done that with my sponsor a couple of times. I've come up with a new idea. And I'll call him and let him know. There's usually silence on the other side of the phone. And then he'll say something like, well, I don't know anybody who's been able to do that and stay sober. Keep me posted. <laughs> Does that mean yes or no? <laughs> well, it means let me know. Um, how we learn, how we develop, how we grow. It's a real process. Slogan. Live and let live. There's two parts to that. One of which is I get to live. I get to have work. I get to have friends. I get to have a place to live. I get to have stuff. I get to have things. I get to have some health. I get to have some adventures. I get to have some recreation. I get to have a life. And so do you. I, I had a, when we were kids, we were friends. As adults, we were no longer friends, but we had contacts together. And I heard that this fellow, who was a big part of my life when I was much younger, he made some decisions I didn't like at all. I didn't like at all. In fact, if I were judgmental, I would say he's making a couple of big mistakes. And I was upset. And I remember going to a meeting, and the topic was live and let live. And part of live and let live is I get to make mistakes, you get to make mistakes. I get to live with the consequences of my mistakes, you get to live with the consequences of your mistakes. It's live and let live. People get to make choices, even if the choices are really dumb. And then you just let go. I don't have to keep bringing it up over and over and over again. I, I'm a, one of my relatives keeps score. I don't know if you have anyone in your family that keeps score. They know every plus and every minus and every up and every down. And every time you were late and every time you were a jerk, they just have a list right here in their brain. And under certain circumstances, it might be five or eight years, the list will be announced. And you will be denounced for being a jerk uh, with great detail. And uh, uh, that, that's a terrifying experience. And I had to realize there's nothing I can do to change that. That's how this person operates. And she gets to. But I don't have to stay for it. When you're done, give me a call. <laughs> live and let live. Let go and let God. Here's a couple of little bits on theology and then we can take a little bit of a break and then, then come back again. In the program, we talk about God as we understand God. 
And I'll tell you, for a long, long time, women and men have talked theology and philosophy. And you're going to find many, many points of view about theology and philosophy at any meeting and in every bar and in every family. And some people are believers and some people are not believers. It's a big subject. I think that's the first thing I want to say. It's a big subject. And I find it interesting that in the AA Big Book, it does not say, you agnostics. It says we agnostics. A lot of us have difficulties here. I do. Every so often I'm not sure what I believe and I'm not sure where it goes. And that's when I have to sit down next to someone whose faith is stronger. There's a, a moment in the New Testament. Jesus is going about doing something. He frequently is. And uh, someone comes up and asks for help. And Jesus says, do you believe? And the guy says, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think that's a pretty good prayer. For those of us who find our faith very weak sometimes. I believe a little. Help me believe more. I believe some help me believe deeper. Help. God. You will find, you know, when they say God as we understand God, that's not the same thing as God as we figure God out. I don't think we figure God out. I think God is bigger than anything we can imagine. I think God is bigger than anything we can think. And I think in terms of, of higher power, and I like that language, higher power. Um, I heard a priest in recovery Tim M., who's right now a chaplain with our armed forces overseas. Um, Tim is a very, very bright man and a very tragic alcoholic who's been sober for a while. Tim um, said, we are told, asked, encouraged to turn our will and our lives over to the care of a higher power, not a lower power. A lot of us have turned our will and our lives over to the care of lower powers before. We don't want to do that again. And if you've done alcohol, cocaine, crystal meth, any other things on that long list, we know lower powers. And they're not life-giving, they're life-taking. So I, in terms of higher power, I think in terms of life. And how big is God? I think God is as big as life itself. If you make God any smaller than that, you get goofy. And you come with goofy ideas. And you'll hear so many, God is really small, you know. God's just a little bigger than me, but not much. Um, you know your God is too small if your God hates all the same people you do. It's just too small. You know? Oh, I know God hates them because I do too. Really? Um, uh, God is big. God is bigger than the United States. God is bigger than American foreign policy. I know that makes some of us very anxious. Oh, you couldn't mean, I mean I really mean that. God is bigger than the English language. God is bigger than the Vatican. God is bigger than the Bible. God is bigger 
than anything we can imagine. God is really big. I think God is intelligent. I think God is creative. I think God is skillful. I think God is merciful. I think God is generous. So when I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I turn my will and my life over to the care of someone who is very big, intelligent, skillful, resourceful, generous, and merciful. And I'm willing to go with that. And if I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, there's a pretty good chance I'm not going to get my own way. Just so you know, we don't get our own ways. My basic prayer is, God, I want it my way and I want it now. And that's not what happens. It's different and it's strange. Now what do I do? Don't drink, don't use, go to meetings, say hello to cranky old timers, be nice to the newcomers. Hello. There's a, um, a spiritual autobiography was written centuries ago by Augustine. Augustine is a North African bishop, convert, fascinating human being, uh, moody, uh, mercurial, blows hot and cold, has a lot of crises. He's a seeker and a searcher, and, and he will uh, uh, become Christian, and he will become the bishop of a little town in North Africa called Hippo, and Augustine will be a teacher and a writer, and he'll write about all kinds of stuff. He'll come up with all kinds of interesting ideas, like original sin, that's one of his, and, and his speculation on things. He's the, he's the brightest mind in the Western church for 900 years. And then he's challenged by Thomas Aquinas, but who cares? That's another story. Augustine. Augustine writes a biography, and in the bi it's called The Confessions of Augustine. It's readable. You can buy it in a modern English translation, and it's very readable. He writes it originally in Latin, and it's full of passion and psychology and insight. And he talks about being a kid. He talks about his mother always walking around with a bottle of wine. I draw no conclusions. Um, he talks about he was girl crazy a couple of times and ran, chased girls all over North Africa. And, and he had a lot of sexual stuff like some people do. I'm sure not in Louisiana, but in other states people do. And Augustine would say, uh, oh, God, make me pure, but not just yet. You know, uh, maybe next Tuesday. Today I'm on a run. Let's go. Uh, so he, the, the addict is very much in Augustine. And Augustine has an experience of a power greater than himself. And he starts turning his life around. And he has a vision of some kind of insight or, or experience where this, he hears a little child singing, Tole lege, tole lege, uh, about scripture. Pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And Augustine, start, he's going to crack the Bible. He's going to figure it out. Like so many us of us have tried to do. We have a guy on the West Coast who has figured it all out. He has a show. And um, he, he's smart and educated. And he thinks and thinks and thinks. And he's trying to figure it all out. And he's on the beach up there in North Africa. And he sees this little kid. And the little kid uh, has dug a hole in the sand and has a bucket and runs to the water and fills the water 
a bucket with water and pours it into the hole in the sand. And the kid does this 80 times. And Augustine finally says, little kid, what are you doing? And the little kid says, I'm going to empty this ocean into my hole. And Augustine says, oh, little boy, uh, the ocean's very big and your hole is very small. That's not going to work. And the little boy looked at him and said, God is very big and your brain is very small. You're not going to figure that one out either. <laughs> and left. So keep that little image in mind the next time you're going to figure God out, would you please? Because God is bigger than anything we can conceive. The Greeks would call God the ground of all being. What does that look like? The ground of all being, like a vibration. Bill, in, in that chapter, We Agnostics, is a very practical chapter. A very practical chapter. Bill will say, you know, most of us don't think about electricity. We just use it. Oh, no, before I flip that switch, let me visualize the source of all electricity and the hydraulic dam and the this and the that and the wires and that, you know, then I can flip. We don't do that. We just flip the switch. And Bill says, use the higher power the same way. Know where you connect with the higher power and then connect. Go there. Go there. And for a lot of us, it's nature. And for a lot of us, it's meetings. And for a lot of us, it's churches. And a lot of us, it's scripture. There are places people go. Try some. Try some. Ten minute break. Nine, do we start? Nine and then the next one. And if you can come, that'd be just fine. Oh. Serenity prayer. God, grant me. And the wisdom to know the difference. Whew. Um, I think what the steps do is give us tools to grow up. Uh, tell the truth. Ask for help. Uh, do an inventory. Uh, share that with another human being. Clean up my mess. That's really important. Clean up my messes. That's a big part of being a grown-up. And then with the 10th step, uh, on a regular basis, admit when I'm wrong and clean up my messes. Admit when I'm wrong and clean up my messes. I think that's a lot of recovery. And we use some prayer and meditation. I'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow morning. And we try to be of service. That's having a pretty good life. Having a pretty good life. It's not all about me. I go to a retreat every year for priests in recovery. And this is in uh, Southern California in January. And a few years ago, the, the priest who gave the, the, the talks like this, his name was Jeff. And he was an Episcopal priest from uh, the state of Nevada. And, and he said some really wonderful things to us. I wrote some of them down. One of the things he told us about the steps in recovery and the program in life was this. He said, 
Surrender first, then think. Surrender first, then think. What, what some of us want to do, and I would include myself in that, is I want to think about all this stuff first, and then I'm going to surrender. I want to think about the steps before I do them. I want to understand the program before I get involved in it. But the fact is, most of us learn by getting involved. It's, you know, how do, do you know how to swim? Well, I've read three books on it. Have you been inside the pool? Not yet, but I'm thinking about it. But I understand it. I understand your arms move and your legs move. I understand swimming. But have you swam? Not yet. You want to get involved. The, the step, not the step, the, the preamble says you're a member when you say you are. That's revolutionary. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. It used to say an honest desire to stop drinking. But what we discovered was a lot of us, when we get in here, we're not that good on honesty. And you didn't need an honest desire to stop drinking. A sleazy desire to stop drinking is all that some people really needed. You could have the worst motives. Well, I've gone to the meetings because the girls are cute, the coffee's good, cookies are fresh. Well, keep coming to meetings and your motives may change. And you might come to meetings to be of service. I like some service positions. I think that's really good. There's a danger, I think, in, in meetings. We're just there as critics. You know? Cookies were better last week. Speaker was better a month ago. Um, I want to be a participant in the program. My sponsor phrases it this way. Uh, the program throws us the ball. Throw the ball back. I need to throw the ball back. I need to participate. But I don't like the ball. It doesn't matter. Throw it back anyway. I want a blue ball, not a green one. Just throw it back. It's too small. It's too big. Just throw it back and participate. And sometimes participating like that talk, it, it's setting the meeting up. It's being of service. It is doing the 10,000 things. Rumi will say there are 10,000 ways to kiss the ground. There's 10,000 ways of being of service. They locked me up in a hospital, 21-day program. And we had hospitals and institutions workers. Are they workers? Volunteers? Came to see us. Two women. One was named Burl, uh, like the jewel, and the other was named Mary. And I'm uh, 29 years old, and I'm locked up in uh, a three-week program in Berkeley, California. And these two... Ladies of a certain age came. Now, Mary was a big lady, and her wig was always on a little crooked. And uh, she, she was very friendly, but she was big and, and tall and, I mean, big boned. And she was a large presence. And whenever she shared, and she would, they'd come to see us every Thursday afternoon. She would talk about recovery, sobriety. I'm so grateful to have meetings. I'm so grateful for the program. I'm so glad to have my life today. I'm so grateful. And I remember thinking, what a poor old lady. Clearly, she has no friends. 
You know, she has no friends because on Thursday afternoon she's coming to visit a bunch of people locked up, and I just think I just felt sorry for her, a little superior to her because she was clearly a limited person. Uh, Burl, the other woman, was was petite and uh, very soft spoken, and I thought she was pretty dull. Now I know. You in Louisiana don't judge people, but I judge people. And I thought she was soft-spoken and dull. She will later become the secretary for central office and will be there for like eight or ten years. And, and she was a great presence in recovery. Um, and I heard her share her story a couple times. This lady who looked rather grandmotherly to me when I was 29. And she has one of those stories that would raise the hair on the back of your neck. Terrifying stuff. And these two women, as part of their recovery, would bring meetings into those of us. We were unwilling. We, we were there. You have to go there. These two old ladies talking. Okay, let's go. And we'd sat and kind of just be jerks. But they stayed sober. Mary will die within two or three years. Um, she was sober, but she had out there for a long time. And, and she's had uh, kidney failure and liver problems, and, and there was a toll that her drinking took on her. And Mary, I bet you she's been gone for 25 years, but boy, I remember her. Um, some wonderful folks. I, I sponsor uh, someone who... Uh, brought meetings into prison, and uh, I would go a couple of times and and give some talks, and I found that wonderful for me, wonderful for me. One of the things about Americans is we do have a tendency to... Um, violate the law whenever we can. We, we have a, uh, an, an aura of rebellion about us. Um, and I want to do a little bit, uh, a little history this afternoon on, on that prohibition period that I mentioned earlier this morning from 1920 to 1933. And uh, on the, the day the prohibition passed, it was passed by the House and the Senate and then a bunch of the states and then a year later, it comes into law. And the day before uh, Prohibition became law, um, this was 1920, the New York Daily News gave its readers the following advice. You may, this is according to the law passed by Congress. You may drink intoxicating liquor in your own home or in the home of a friend when you are a bona fide guest. Uh, drinking it at home is, is, is okay. You may buy intoxicating liquor on a bona fide medical prescription by a doctor. A pint can be bought every 10 days. So a doctor can prescribe a pint per customer every 10 days. Lots of customers, lots of pints. You may consider any place you live permanently as your home. If you have more than one home, you can keep a stock of liquor in each. But you can't shift it from one to the other. Okay? You may keep liquor in any storage room or club locker 
provided the storage place is for the exclusive use of yourself, family, or bona fide friends. It's the bona fide friends that I want to be. You may get a permit to move liquor when you change your residence. You may manufacture, sell, or transport liquor for non-beverage or sacramental purposes provided you obtain a government permit, priests and rabbis. You cannot carry a hip flask. You cannot give away or receive a bottle of liquor as a gift. You cannot take liquor to hotels or restaurants and drink it in the public dining rooms. You cannot buy or sell formulas or recipes for homemade liquors. You cannot ship liquor for beverage use. You cannot manufacture anything above one-half of one percent liquor strength in your home. You cannot store liquor in any place except your own home. You cannot display liquor signs or advertisements on your premises. You cannot remove reserve stocks from storage. The law. Well, where is this piece that I marked so nicely? Hold on. In, in, Calif in Northern California, where I live, there's a lot of wine growers. Is there wine growing in Louisiana? Not down here? Well, uh, Northern California, Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino, all kinds of the big wineries. And, and you have to realize if prohibition goes into effect, the, the vineyards go out of work. So this is a business thing. What are we going to do about it? And a lot of the vineyards, they realize they could, they could sell fresh grapes and ship them back east, and people would buy them and make wine in their homes. That was one thing. Um, and it says this. Although some California vineyards were ruined by prohibition, certain Napa Valley winemaking families became exceedingly wealthy. In fact, grape production, far from declining, increased tenfold between 1920 and 1933, the main reason being the manufacture of dried grape and raisin cakes. These were allowed under a provision of the law to prevent farmers from going under entirely. The aim was officially to allow householders to make cider and grape juice for home consumption to the extent of 200 gallons annually. But it's cider and grape juice. The raisin cakes, this is what I love, and, and I, I just applaud this so much. The raisin cakes were easily turned into something else. Wholesale, wholesalers used demonstrators, often attractive, well-spoken young women, in large stores to draw attention to the winemaking possibilities of their raisin cakes, while ostensibly warning against fermentation. Their straight-faced, cautionary patter would tell buyers this, do not place this liquid in a jug and put it aside for 21 days because it will turn into wine. Do not do that. Do not stop the bottle with a cork because this is necessary only if fermentation occurs. 
The bricks were sold with a label that read, Caution, warning, will ferment and turn into wine. The biggest beneficiary of all was the Beringer Vineyards in Napa Valley, whose owners, Charles and Bertha Beringer, were the first to take advantage of this loophole. Um, let me see. The year 19...